so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the ERLC Podcast. Today, we'll hear a panel discuss the hard topic of infertility. You know, I say this and think that it's maybe like a cliche in the church answer, but it's true that prayer, um, really taking the time to pray about it is so important. And um, my husband and I were both praying about just this and then just really taking the time to process through it with each other and, and be open about how we were really dealing with it and how we were feeling and allowing each other to grieve that in our own ways because we were each processing it differently. Infertility is one of the hardest things a couple can walk through, and it's often experienced alone. It's often misunderstood, and others are fearful to address the subject. So at our national conference, Elizabeth Graham, Lauren McAfee, Nicole Lino, and Chelsea Sobolik used their personal and professional experience to encourage those walking through this struggle. Let's listen to this conversation now. My name is Elizabeth Graham. I serve as the Director of Events at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And I just want to thank you all so much for taking the opportunity this afternoon to be here with us to talk about infertility. I know it's a very difficult topic and can be extremely emotional. I just wanted to say thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for being here. Well, I'm going to let our panelists uh, introduce themselves and tell you a little bit about why they're here and sort of what um, what qualifies them to talk about this very important topic um, or how it's affected them personally. So we'll go ahead and get started with our friend Lauren McAfee over here on the end. All right. I'm Lauren McAfee. I am from Oklahoma City and I uh, work there at the Hobby Lobby corporate office as corporate ambassador doing communications and advertising. And I'm also a PhD student at Southern Seminary studying ethics and public policy. And my um, husband and I have been married for, <laughs> we have been married for nine years. We met when we were seven years old. So we have known each other most, most of our lives since basically I can remember. Um, and the reason I'm on this panel is that we have been hoping to have a family for six years now. Um, so six years ago, we started the adoption process and have been pursuing that, and that hasn't worked out. Um, so six years later, we still do not have an adopted child. And then we've also been hoping biologically to have children for three years, and that hasn't worked out either. So kind of all of the avenues that we have been pursuing towards starting a family have not come to fruition for us. So um, that's why I'm on this panel. I am Chelsea Patterson Sobolik. Um, I live and work in Washington, D.C. 
Um, my husband, Michael, is actually from Dallas, so it's super fun to be here. My husband's name is Michael, and we just got married a year ago. And my experience with childlessness is a little bit more on the unique side. Um, I found out that I can't have children when I was a teenager. Um, I was 19 years old, which is a little bit more unique. Most people walk through infertility, miscarriage, childlessness in the context of a marriage. But I was a freshman uh, doing my uh, freshman year at Liberty University. So I actually wrote a book about my experience called Longing for Motherhood, uh, Finding Hope in the Midst of Childlessness. Uh, I'm Matthew Arbo. I serve uh, as Assistant Professor of Theological Studies and Director of the Center for, Public, for Faith and Public Life at Oklahoma Baptist University. I'm not from Oklahoma, uh, though I like Oklahoma a lot. Um, I'm actually from Virginia. Uh, my wife, uh, wife Ashley, is an attorney and uh, two boys, Henry and James. And I'm, I'm on this panel because uh, I've written a different kind of book on uh, infertility. I'm an elder at our church in, uh, in Oklahoma City called Frontline Church. And uh, I'm on the panel because, on the one hand, I have some very close family, very close family and friends who have um, experienced prolonged infertility and uh, so have just been a part of their lives intimately and have um, accompanied with them in that way. Mm -hmm. And and then there's um, some pastoral challenges that came up as an elder at Frontline, and that got me thinking about um, resources for the church on this subject. And so I wrote Walking Through Infertility with Crossway. It was published earlier this summer. My name is Nicole Lino, and I am married to Nathan, and he is a pastor in Houston. We've been there for 16 years, and our, why I ended up here, part of it is because I am married to a pastor, and so we walk with people through this struggle. Lots of experiences there, but when we decided to start our family, it was not working, and so um, after a time of, of not getting pregnant, then we did seek medical help. And um, with doctor's help, we were able to have four children biologically later. And so the Lord has provided four wonderful gifts to us that are age 14, 13, 11, and 9. <laughs> Sorry. Ooh, yeah. Like, which kid? 14, 13, 11, and 9. And so for me, um, I know I've already introduced myself, but um, in 2007, uh, we, I ended up having a mass on my thyroid, and um, it just sort of came out of nowhere, and then they found five other ones, and so I ended up having to do a full thyroidectomy. I was not prepared for that very shortly, two years after we got married, and so once you don't have a thyroid, it's just extremely difficult to get pregnant. Your levels just have to be very much in a certain range, and we could not get pregnant on our own. We weren't allowed to get pregnant for a long period of time in order to help my body uh, get back to the place that it needed to be, and then we were finally able to get pregnant. It was through medical intervention, and so that's what brought me here. Okay, I'm just going to dive right in. Matthew, we talked about your book. I know this is just a difficult topic, but coming from your background, how is it that you would counsel someone who's struggling with infertility? Yeah, I think initially I would say a lot depends on who it is I'm talking to, who we're talking to, and um, how long have they encountered this, what kind of support network they have, and so on. So, But those sort of caveats out of the way, I think one of my at least initial approaches is to do a lot of listening. Uh, I do a lot of listening and a lot of accompanying and uh, ask questions. You know, I mean, what can I do for you right now? 
do you have any needs that can be met right now? Is there anybody I can put you into contact with? And I, I try not to initially give a set of answers to this struggle, uh, but instead invite the disclosure in trusting ways. Um, and because I think what my, at least my experience, and I'm sure we'll hear lots of examples, my initial experience with folks is that they just, they grieve uh, powerfully and, and they really need um, someone to grieve with them. And, uh, and, and we should really be reluctant to offer platitudes. I, I think lots of couples end up getting hurt with platitudes. People mean very well, but platitudes are also deeply wounding. You know? mm -hmm. It's not like the couple doesn't have their own desires too. Mm -hmm. But that, that's what I'd say initially. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that because actually one of the questions I have for Lauren is talking about grieving. But before we get to that, I think I would just love to know, how do you know when it's right to tell people? Like what, when you're going through infertility, it's a very private issue. And so to share it publicly puts you in a very vulnerable position. What did you all do? And then how did you decide to talk about it publicly? Yeah, so this is, and this is something that's going to be different for each couple. So um, my husband and I decided to share about our experience publicly, and not just with our friends and community, but also um, we both ended up writing about it. We, we both found it helpful for us to process it by writing. And so we published those blogs on our own blogs. Um, and then my husband is a pastor. And so he was preaching a passage on the Holy Spirit as comforter. Um, and so then also for our whole church, like sharing that publicly. So, so that was a decision that we prayed about a lot before and had a lot of conversations about what the implications would be of sharing um, this experience publicly. And for us, we felt called to um, share about that because we both felt that um, we were in a place where we were able to walk through this season of suffering um, and, and kind of share that with people in, in, in hopes of bringing glory to God by showing our suffering. And, and wrestling with that and also still trusting in the Lord and knowing that He is good. But most of my friends have not taken that path. Um, they've maybe told a few people. And for completely understandable reasons, I completely support that. And so I, I think it's something that every person will have to kind of figure out um, where they're at and where they think um, their journey is going to take them and what their situation is with sharing that. Although I would, I would encourage everyone to at least be having a few close for people in your community that can walk with you through that because it is a very, very difficult experience to walk through just that deep longing that is un unfulfilled and unmet and to have the support of your you know, closest friends to be able to walk through that, I think is really important. But beyond that, kind of whether or not you're going to share that on uh, social media and from the you know pulpit is, is completely different. And, and so I understand a lot of people that haven't, but um, we, we just wanted to use it as an opportunity to give encouragement because we do realize that this affects so many people. Millions of people experience infertility. And there are, because of that, there are people in your congregation and in your church who are walking through this. Um, and if they're not currently walking through this, it has been a part of their story. 
So um, if you have a church more than a dozen people, someone has experienced this. So, um, you know, it's not something that's often talked about a lot. And so we just wanted to be able to share about our experience as a means of providing hope and encouragement that people aren't alone that walk through this. I love what you said that everyone's experience is different and whether or not they choose to tell people just depends on their current situation. I know for you, Nicole, that looked very different for you and Nathan. I would love for you just to share about that a little bit. Um, it did look different from, uh, for us from the standpoint, you know, as we were walking through that time and in all honesty, not dealing with it very well and on many days, you know, like not living in any kind of victory or joy in the Lord in that season, that was not a fabulous time to be telling everyone. Okay, yes, I was struggling, but then to have all of my yuck on display what was not helpful <laughs> to us or to the people I was trying to walk alongside in their lives. And so um, really, if I could go back, I would have been further along in my sanctification in the process um, before I let everyone in. In our role, um, it was very public um, in the, the place of service that we have. And so, again, the platitudes and stuff, I mean, that, that is not helpful. Um, and so I would have probably protected my heart from some of that longer and um, in a different way. I would have kept it um, mm -hmm. to a closer circle because, because those things are so wounding that other people, y'all, people don't know what to say to us. They, they sh surely do not know. Um, and so it's not that they're trying to be ugly, but they don't know what to say. And so then the wounds, and then you have to forgive them for something they didn't even really mean to do. And so it's just this cycle that it's really hard to get out of. And so I would have done it differently. Um, I would have kept it closer. And also I think it depends on you and your spouse being on the same page mm -hmm. about that. Mm -hmm. Because I know as I've walked with other women through this, the woman wants to talk and she wants to share everything and she needs... She needs her people with her all the time, and husband is not there yet. And he, mm -hmm. and so then you have vulnerabilities in the marriage, um, which is also not helpful to you. And so um, it, it's a tricky deal. Yeah, it was tricky for us, too, because I really, Richmond was, when we finally did get pregnant after some intervention, which we'll come and talk about intervention here in just a little bit and just dive a little deeper on that, he was ready to share with everyone and I did not want to share with anyone except for the people closest to me. I did not want anyone to know for fear of losing the baby. And it, a fear was like consuming me um, just because of the struggle to get to. And it was messy and ugly and not beautiful. And, and then along the way, we finally got pregnant. He was ready to tell people. And then we went in because we were high risk. We went in to the doctor. And at that point, they told us, well, we don't think that the baby's viable. And so that was because we were fertility patients and I was high risk, we got to go in at six weeks, the fertility clinic. And then so from six weeks to nine weeks, they thought the baby was dying. So every week I would go in for more testing and they would tell me the baby's not viable. And at that point, it felt like it was crushing my soul. <laughs> I was just deeply struggling. 
And it really brought me to a place where I was confronted with the sovereignty of God. Like, do I believe that God is sovereign in the midst of this? Do I trust Him? Is it painful? Absolutely. But do I believe that God is who He says He is and that He is a good Father? And... And so I was reading Justin Taylor and John Piper's book on suffering and the sovereignty of God right in the midst of it. And Richmond was telling me, just trust the Lord. And so I just, I would echo, it was not pretty. It was ugly. And my fears manifested themselves and the pain. Well, and I think we do have to give ourselves some freedom to have those ugly, unvictorious, down in the depths of despair day. Like, days, weeks, they happen, but we have to come back to the Lord is victorious and will redeem every situation, and He is sovereign and knows what He's doing. And so if we can't come out of that cycle, then then that's where we, we run into problems. Yeah, that is very helpful. And I would tell you more of my story, but I'm not, I, I, we want to hear from everyone else. So we're going to move on. Chelsea, so you just recently wrote your book, Longing for Motherhood, um, Holding on to Hope in the Midst of Childlessness. And I know you mentioned, you know, why you wrote the book. What message do you hope that readers will get when they read your book? Yeah, so Longing for Motherhood is the book I wish I'd had when I walked out of the doors of the doctor's office and into the doors of my local bookstore, my local Christian bookstore. I walked in there searching for a resource on childlessness. And I I use the word childlessness to incorporate infertility, miscarriage, barrenness, um, birth mothers that have placed children up for adoption, um, women that have had abortion. Um, being childless looks so many different ways. And so there were a couple books on infertility, but that didn't describe me. And so I I actually picked up that John Piper book on suffering. So I basically picked up every book on suffering instead. But the the message, the crux of longing for motherhood is what do you do with an unfulfilled desire? How do you wrestle through that with the Lord and come back to trusting the Lord? And the question I wrestled with, um, and maybe this is just a personal thing, I never really doubted God's sovereignty in that. And I didn't even really doubt God's goodness. What I had to wrestle with was, is God kind? Mm. Where is God's kindness? Because I knew enough theology in my head to know God's sovereign and God's good. I see that in His Word. But His kindness to, to my heart was what I was really wrestling with and through. And so my purpose and hope and longing for motherhood and in sharing my story and now Michael and I's story is that I will... It will be an arm around someone else to say, you're not alone. This is not, you don't have to walk through this by yourself. And there is hope, and that hope can be found in Christ. And, and like you were saying, Nicole, like there is a season to grieve and to grieve that deeply and to grieve that with the Lord, but then also to cling to that hope that's in Christ. And it's a tension that I'm probably going to wrestle with for the rest of my life of how do I still have hard days, hard seasons, but bring that back to Christ and the hope I have in Him. And so that's kind of the core message is what do you do with an unfulfilled desire? And how do you, 
how do you see God's kindness in that? That is really good. Matthew, I think a lot of people want to know, you know, there's so much debate theologically about, we're going to go there, about medical intervention. It's a very difficult topic, and many believers fall on various ends of the spectrums on what is acceptable medical intervention. And so where is the line biblically on what treatments they can and should pursue, I think is one question. And then you can you talk specifically about the ethics of some treatment options? Yeah. Yes, I will try my best. <laughs> Good luck. Good luck. I'm so glad you're here. And I, I will try to uh, explain this with as much sensitivity as I possibly can. Okay, and I try to do that in the book too, uh, recognizing that people make judgments on the basis of things they know at the time, you know. And so I want to make that absolutely clear that people make judgments on the basis of truths that they accept at the time, and, and they may see any number of things differently after that. But um, very often, infertility treatment tracks the same sort of scale as other medical treatments. You know, you start with something less invasive, you know, maybe it's a change in diet or lifestyle, and, you know, those... You try those measures for a while, and then maybe it doesn't work, but then you escalate, and uh, maybe there's uh, some hormonal treatment or an outpatient surgery, and it varies from person to person and couple to couple. It's also worth um, mentioning here that um, that it's we we now know that um, it's this, that it's about on both sides, male and female. It's not just sort of one side or the other. So um, we were remarking earlier that um, the representation in the room reflects, I think, still some misconceptions about. Uh, possibly about infertility, but but at some point, a, a couple may become candidates for assisted reproductive technologies, and um, the this is the the sort of line I take in the book, and uh, which I, I continue to try to to stress, but again with absolute sensitivity. So I end up in the book um, kind of cautioning against in vitro fertilization for some reasons that I outline. And the main reason is main reasons have to do with the backstory to IVF and the clinical research that was required to see the research techniques refined. So it's a destruction of hundreds of thousands of embryos in order to see these, these techniques refined. Um, but there's also some risks to the child, and the, the risks are imposed on the children. And we have a few stories recently of um, some actual storage freezers failing in different states. Uh, causing the death of um, thousands of embryos, so there are there are risks, and the risks are imposed on the child that will be born. And, um, and I, I realize what the draw. I, I recognize it. I recognize the draw. That's every. There's just something in us. We want a child of our own, and uh, and and this is this is a medical technology. It's available. I can avail myself to it. But uh, I end up cautioning against it because those risks are are so great, and they are put on the child and. And then there's a question of who bears responsibility. I mean, if something were to happen to the child, who would bear responsibility for the, the whatever the impairment or defect or whatever. So, um, I, I but I think other interventions leading up to that, uh, I, I describe as as permissible and at least on a moral level. And I, I'd say that um, couples should um, should become informed patients in that way. They should, they should, it's important to understand what it is. I think even at the outset, what are these treatments uh, exactly? What do they do to my body? What do they require of us? And then also as a couple saying, we will not go this far. And, and I think reaching that sort of limit as a couple from the outset, that we've done our research, we've asked other people that we trust, we've sought counsel, we've prayed, and we've decided this is how far we'll go, and then we'll try something else. You know, um, and that, that's really important to have a sense of conscience and bearing from the outset 
And accepting, as some of the others said up here, accepting that God has something for us which is good. God has something for us which is good. Um, and it, that it's not going to make it easy to accept at different points, right? That it will take time to let that settle in. But I can remark some in more detail if uh, wanted, but I wanted to kind of give the broader sketch of why, why I say what I do. Chelsea, back to you. Many times uh, a couple doesn't find out that they're infertile or childless, you know, suffering from childlessness until they try to conceive. However, you walked through the struggle before you were even married. Um, what encouragement and counsel can you give young women who are walking through this and they find out before they get married? Um, so, several thoughts. Um, the biggest question, I had two questions in my mind when I was walking through it as a single teenager. And then as I developed into dating and um, dating my now husband. Um, but the two questions on my mind and my heart were, if I can't procreate, if I can't have my own child, basically what good am I? Because I had such a skewed view of womanhood in my mind of womanhood equals fertility. And when that was taken away, I, I felt very cheap. And so I, I had to really think through and wrestle through what being a woman meant biblically um, after the fall, because my body was not how God originally designed it. And um, so I had to think through that and then also think through wisdom issues of, of walking with this big thing as a single woman. Um, because again, there was a lot of wisdom issues of how much do I share publicly before I was married. It, it, there's just a lot. So the, the one thing on womanhood, which I really sat down and thought through, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a woman? What if I can't have a baby? Am I less than? And I used this example recently of humanity, and humans were not designed to be merely functional. God did design women originally to bear babies, um, but we are living post-fall. And so I used the example recently in a talk I gave of um, one of my heroes, Joni Erickson Tata, who, if you don't know her, you should. Um, you should read her work. But she had a diving accident at age um, 16 and was paralyzed from the neck down. And so um, her story actually really encouraged me as a single woman thinking through, will a man ever want to date or marry me if I can't have children? Um, because she's actually now married to a man. And it was her story before Michael and I's story began really encouraged me to see that there, there is such a bigger view of being a woman and being marriage is so much bigger than um, having children. And it is a wonderful, good part. And Michael and I do desire to be parents one day, but being a woman is so much grander and bigger than our fertility. And when we, um, when that's all that women are thought of, it, it's demeaning, honestly. And so, um, being a woman is about reflecting Christ, and Joni Erickson Tata does that beautifully and well from her wheelchair. She uses what she has now to proclaim God's glory, and so I can do that even though I will never have my own child. And so we can do that as men, women, regardless of the suffering God puts in. We can use that to glorify God, and so that's—humans were created to image God. And we can see that in so many different ways. And so 
to any woman who is walking through, whether it's childlessness before marriage or um, maybe she has a sexual past or just a big thing to enter into marriage, um, a couple things. Everyone walks into marriage with something. It might not be as big as I can't have children, but everyone walks into marriage with something. And things are going to come up. You're, you're never going to marry a perfect person. And so um, I would say if it is childlessness or whatever it is, that's not, don't let that define you or your future, your future relationship. Lauren, I want to move over to you um, to talk about how the husband and wife walk through this together because I realize that oftentimes that can look very different. It can look different for different couples, um, also different for how the wife processes things versus how the husband processes things. What do you do if your spouse isn't as affected by the struggle as you are, number one? And then how can you avoid resentment in that process? Yeah, I... I love, I love this question because I, I know that is something that not only in this issue, but in many other issues that come up in marriage can be kind of how do we, if we're as a couple walking up against um, a season of suffering, we're two different people. So we're going <laughs> to deal with it very differently. You know, I'm, I'm grateful that my husband and I both kind of through prayer and just processing it kind of have always ended up easily on the same page. And I realize that's not going to be everyone's story. Um, so I think that just, you know, I say this and think that it's maybe like a cliche in the church answer, but it's true that prayer, um, really taking the time to pray about it is so important. And um, my husband and I were both praying about just this and then just really taking the time to process through it with each other and and be open about how we were really dealing with it and how we were feeling and allowing each other to grieve that in our own ways um, because we do, we were each processing it differently. And that's just, I think, the, the reality of being in the body of Christ is too, is we each will process things, grieve things um, differently than everyone else. And so we have to figure out how to, in community, deal well with that and, and not um, become resentful. And, and I think that, that we do that by seeking the heart of God and spending time in prayer and spending time in His Word. And I can't control my husband's reactions and how he handles it, just like he can't control how I and handle it and react to it. And so all I know is that I can control how I'm handling it. And so um, I, you know, I just— myself would go to prayer and, and be just thoughtful about that. And then also wanting to support my husband and, and vice versa. He was very supportive too, and just be thoughtful about how he was handling it. So um, I, I think that for each, for each person, each couple, it's going to be different, but just spending time really being prayerful about it and, and just seeking after the Lord through just prayer and scripture and really being intentional about that. And that's going to be hard to do in a season that feels so dark, mm-hmm. which I think is, is the, difficult, the most difficult part is when you're in the darkness of it, you don't think like, yeah, I want to read my Bible. <laughs> you're like, this, I just, like, this is just, it's heavy. And so those are the moments, though, when we need God the most and 
And there um, is so much beauty in scripture when we see lament happening in scripture, when you read Job or read the Psalms. And I just loved seeing that, you know, people in scripture <laughs> were wrestling, wrestled with this and had difficult things and brought that to God and um, that we don't have to shy away from and, and bring things in a pretty bow to God. Um, and, and that it, it can be such an encouragement, but sometimes it's just hard to even get to the point where you want to open your Bible and read it. But there is so much freedom and healing in it. So keep pursuing that and just allow God's Holy Spirit to work. We are always seeking the Lord during these difficult times or should always be seeking the Lord, praying, reading the Word. It still doesn't change the fact that it's a very painful experience. And I'm sure even now there's still times where you're grieving this process, that it's just extremely difficult. So I, I want everyone to hear in this room, just because you're praying through it, just because you're seeking the Lord, just because you're reading the scripture, does not change the fact that the pain is real and that you are going to grieve. And I think probably both of you all would speak to that. Um, I don't want to put you on the spot, but if you would like to, but I just want to remind you, like, you are not alone. Um, and it does feel like a very difficult, dark time. I really appreciate those words, Lauren. Um, Nicole, how do you rejoice in the Lord's provision while you have children and you see others around you? You know, you struggled with infertility. Now you've got four beautiful children. But you're also in the process, you're mentoring women in your church, younger ladies. How do you rejoice in the gift that the Lord has given you, but walk alongside those through this pain and suffering in, in just a very difficult season? Yeah, that, that's something that I really have had a hard time with over the years because my, my struggle wasn't as long and as hard, seemingly as other people have faced. And so, and then the Lord did give me four children um, and two of them medically and then two of them, ta-da. Um, and so, you know, so it was like, it was almost this shame that I couldn't rejoice. I couldn't be excited that the Lord had provided for us. And that is just simply not true. Um, he gives good gifts. And we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And so it took me, you know, I've had to work through it over time. But doing it in a way where you're not flaunting that the Lord came through for you and provided your heart's desire, like you have to be really sensitive um, to other people. And you do have to mourn with them. I mean, because I can relate to the hurt and the pain. And so that, that's a natural outflow of that. And I don't have to, you know, in their face, be all about how the Lord did this fabulous thing for me. Does that make sense? Um, and so, but it's a really a sensitive issue that you have to um, pay close attention to the Holy Spirit. You have to understand where the other person is. You know, like there are times when I just don't even tell them, like, what our process was, how anything happened, because that's not helpful to them. Um, and so being sensitive to how you can bless them and encourage them, um, keeping some of it to yourself, um, but also being able to be excited that the Lord 
gave you a good gift. Yes, it's very hard, but I think very helpful. Uh, another topic that we really haven't talked a lot about, um, and I do just want to take um, this question, is miscarriages. So I think that's that's very important as we're talking about infertility, childlessness. Miscarriages oftentimes are so painful because those of you that have experienced a miscarriage, but you may not have a child that has survived. So you are a mother. So let me just get to the question um, because I'm stumbling over these words. Having an actual miscarriage just adds another layer of grief to the struggle. How do we process it? How do we help others process it? Is it okay to grieve? What does that look like? And it's going to look different for every person. Um, Do we share that and still maintain healthy boundaries? So I would just like to open that up to, to any of you on the panel that would like to speak to the issue of miscarriages. You absolutely have to grieve, undeniably. You must do it for your mental and spiritual health, for your spouse's mental and spiritual health. Um, You both need to walk through that, and I recommend getting help to do that. You would, in most other cases, when you experience the loss of life, there's someone walking with you through that. Someone is aware, someone knows. Um, Rarely do you experience such a loss in isolation. Um, I can't think of another experience where you would. And so it's just not healthy. So get help to do that. It doesn't have to be someone that has walked that road, but someone that can speak truth into your life, um, someone that can love you well, that can walk alongside you. um, And, you know, Sometimes we do have to have truth spoken to us in a way that just lifts us up and kind of gets us going. Um, so, so find that person um, and absolutely please grieve um, and let someone help you do that. Um, one of my team members and I had to step off the venue yesterday to go handle a situation. And we got a phone call while we were out that a friend of ours was in the process of miscarrying her baby at 12 weeks. And they suspected that something was wrong last week. And she's had four miscarriages. And she, a long story, decided not to go through with a medical procedure to help move along the process. We just cried in the car yesterday. It's painful when you walk alongside a friend and you see that pain and suffering. Um, And it's okay to cry. It's okay to grieve. Like it's, the Lord has given us this heart for one another to bear one another's burdens. And I grieve for her for the pain that she feels and the loss because life is beautiful. And I didn't have any words to say other than I love you. And I'm praying for you. And I'm sorry we're far away. And we sent a meal. And that's it. I didn't have any 
special scripture to say. I didn't, I just didn't know. (laughs) But I just encourage you that if you have suffered from a miscarriage, um, to grieve that and to share that with someone close to you that can walk alongside you during this difficult season. Because the body of Christ can show you Christ in the midst of this suffering. And it may not be that that someone has the right words to say. They may not always, and they're probably not going to, but so that they can love you and pray for you. So just, sorry about that. I just It's okay. Can I just say, when, when you're looking for this person, um, it might not be mom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because she's grieving too. It might not be best friend. Okay, it might have to be someone else that can love you well and walk you through that um, because of the other people that are grieving with you. And so really seek out that person that can help you do that well. Um, you, you, I think you do have to have different types of people to walk alongside that. But just um, give some other people the freedom to grieve with you um, in their own way. And mom is sometimes, it's a hard, it's a hard thing on mom. Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. To find more information on this topic, visit our site at erlc.com. Beginning in February, Trillian Newbell will host a special series called Better Together. Stay tuned in the coming weeks to find out more about this powerful series. And join us next week as we hear a discussion about why politics matters for the pro-life cause. 